This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. I love coffee. I love wine. I love beer. For the same reason, I love chocolate. Chocolate can change every year depending on how it's grown, where it's grown, elevations. You can get so many different types and styles of chocolate and percentages. So chocolate can pair with so many different things. And it can pair with so many unusual flavors that you don't think of. And it takes on different profiles depending on how it's eaten. That's what I just love about chocolate. That's renowned pastry chef and master chocolatier Steve Hodge. He's the owner of Temper Chocolate and Pastry in Vancouver and co-host of Project Bakeover on the Food Network. Steve, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having us. Can't wait. This is going to be fun. I know. I'm so excited. We're going to talk about the show. We're going to talk about food and we're going to talk about you. What's the greatest thing about being a pastry chef? Um, I, it's never one great thing for me. It's a bunch of things. What I absolutely love about being a pastry chef is that it changes every day in the sense that certain things can change and react depending on, you know, the humidity, the temperature, uh, the space you're working in, large versus small, the equipment you're using. And you have to be able to pivot quickly. You have to understand why certain ingredients react. And if it's not working, how do you change it? And it's that ongoing you, you never stop. You're always learning. You're always testing yourself. How can I become more efficient in a kitchen? How can I, how can I uh, become efficient fast, but yet still keeping high quality? Your ingredients can change all the time, depending on weather and conditions outside on how you grow. And I know you love chocolate, but what is it that you love most about chocolate? I love coffee. I love alcohol. I love wine. I love beer, even though I don't drink a lot of beer anymore because I know it's not healthy. (laughs) And for the same reason, I love chocolate. Chocolate can change every year depending on how it's grown, where it's grown, elevations. You can um, get so many different types and styles of chocolate and percentages. So chocolate can pair with so many different things and it can pair with so many unusual flavors that you don't think of and chocolate on its own if it's made by a great producer um has a mouthfeel to it that you can't replicate in any other food and it takes on different what's the word different profiles depending on how it's eaten whether it's melted and it's hot melted and it's cold uh crushed up solid um it's it's just one of those ingredients that i think a lot of people don't know about and when they think of chocolate they associate it associate it to candy bars i mean i eat chocolate every single day in the morning i put it in my in my uh protein shakes because it is so healthy for you it's full of antioxidants and 
if you take the time and educate yourself on chocolate, there's, there's so many different flavor profiles you can play with. And I think that's what's so great about chocolate. Are you up for a couple of games? Let's do it. I wanted to start off with a little bit of a game of this or that. Oh my God, I'm nervous. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Fries or onion rings? Oh, onion rings. I've never been a fry person. Really? People don't get it. But I can't eat an onion ring raw. I hate it. It's on the list with peas. But an onion cooked, an onion caramelized is one of my favorites. Let's backpedal here. On the list with peas. What's wrong with peas? The texture, like when I moved to London with my wife years ago and mushy peas was the thing, <laughs> I, I, to me it was like, <laughs> like, get me out of here. Okay, I've done my research here. Chocolate or peanut butter? Peanut butter. <laughs> peanut butter with chocolate though is unbelievable. I'm starting to listen to my doctor because I'm getting older. Mm -hmm. he told me I need to actually start cutting back on the peanut butter. I eat like a liter and a half a week. No way. I absolutely love everything about peanut butter. <laughs> I mean, I'm a peanut butter lover, but I think you're next level. It's an addiction. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. Okay, Mary, crunchy or smooth? Smooth. It has to be yeah. smooth. Same. Smooth. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it has to be smooth. I wanted to talk about the bakery and how did Temper become the name of the bakery? I always knew I wanted to own my own place. It goes back uh, when I used to do go to these fishing trips with my dad. This chef that used to run this lodge was a, a old chef from England, and um, I was getting into cooking. And he asked me, um, you know, do you want to own your own place one day, or do you want to work for someone? And I said, I I've always wanted to own my own place. And he said, Okay, well, with that go out and spend the next 10, 15 years and work for as many people as you can in the kitchens because you'll learn the good things and you'll learn the bad things. And he said, the best experience for you is to learn what not to do. And you're going to see a lot of mishaps and a lot of failures in kitchens and you're going to learn from that. And I just didn't know when I want, was going to open up Temper. And then I was working for a chef in Vancouver for a few years. And I just, I, I woke up one day, it was just that feeling where I was like, okay, I'm ready. You know, I've been running this guy's kitchen. I've been writing his recipes. I've been guiding the team. And I think that, you know, and the leadership was there. I think that came from sports. And I just, you know, at, at that point, I was like, okay, now it's time for me to take the credit instead of giving someone else the credit. And I woke up and it, I um, decided, okay, I'm going to go on my own. And that's, I hired a uh, my financial advisor at the time, and he helped me write a business plan. And I spent about a year, close to a year working with him and figuring out how to do this. The name came from, I was out having some beers with some buddies, some chefs, and, you know, we're all talking about, okay, if we were to own our own place one day, what would we call it? And uh, I was throwing out names and a lot of, and I was like, yeah, I don't want to call it like cupcakes or flour. It's not my personality. And one of the guys is like, you need to call it temper. That's your personality. And it's a play on words. We use that application in all types of cooking, not just chocolate and even in savory cooking or when you make pastry creams or mousses, cause you're tempering hot and cold ingredients together. But you know, a chef's temper, um, you can play off of that. And, um, it was just a fun thing. And so then when I, I went out to a bunch of people, friends, my mom, my dad, I said, what do you think about this name temper? And not one person didn't like it. They're like, that is you. And that's how the name came. And it's funny because 
as soon as I read the name, that those are the first two things that came to mind were the application of tempering yeah. while cooking yeah. and what people think. <laughs> I'm going to say think, and I'm using air quotes, chef's temperament yeah, is. Well, when we, which they're yeah, not, not no, all. But yeah, not at all. <laughs> um, when, when you see all the dents in my freezer, that's not because of the temper. That was just running into it. Um, but, uh, you know, it was funny because when we first opened, we had, we played off of it. So we had all of our retail staff in the front. Um, they wore shirts that black shirts and at the back it would have little sayings like control your temper uh uh, chef's temper uh temper tantrum oh that's hilarious yeah so it was cool love it what's your favorite pastry to bake oh croissant hands down oh my god and i'm terrified to try and make that yeah i learned from a baker in england at a restaurant called the Wolseley. he was a master baker I got to work with him for about four months i was on the baking section then he went off to um work for the rue brothers and then they brought in another baker and I got to learn off of him. But there's something I just love about um, laminating dough. And it can change every single day. One day it can be perfect. The next day it could go to bleep, bleep, bleep. But mm-hmm. um, it's understanding uh, temperature control when you're, when you're working with croissants. You know, is how cold your butter to your dough uh, the resting times and, um, you know, working on that, our, our croissant at temper, when we first opened, before we opened it, I was in a test kitchen testing what I was going to bring to the menu. And, um, I think we did, I think it was 28 doughs I had tested before I nailed the croissant and it was amazing even down to, cause I love the science side of food and understanding why things work. Like even down to if this dough is proofed two minutes longer than it should why is the bot? Why is the butter leaking out? And then we'd look at that and we'd be like, okay, well, what's our percentage of butter in the dough? And if we can bring it down a percent or half of a percent, will that affect it? And and we still today work our our, our croissant evolves every day in the sense that you know if it's because it rains in Vancouver all the time, uh, understanding okay, how do we adjust the proofers? You know, funny thing talking about menus and. Um, you know, how do you, how do you decide what you're going to put on your menu? How are you going to change it? The pandemic obviously affected everyone worldwide in the businesses. In one sense, the pandemic was a great thing that it made you change the strategy on how you run your business. And for us, what it did, and it was an eye opener was we had a customer because we lost all of our seating inside. We were a grab and go place. We became an essential place and we had a customer come in and said oh do you sell frozen croissants i I would i would like to bake croissants at home because i'm not leaving my house and we're like well no we don't and we never even thought about that um but we're like okay here's some croissants and we're like well how do you do it and of course i'm there i'm like just 30 minute speech on how to proof and blah 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 anyways they took them home and they did them and they came in about a week later and they showed a picture of them. And I was like, wow, those look better than our croissants we make in our shop. <laughs> and then, you know, they tell a friend, a friend tells a friend. And before you know it, people are coming in their order frozen croissants. So we had to sit back and think, okay, we need to readjust our menu. Because one, we had 262 SKUs in our shop from our confections on the retail to what was in the showcase and all the little bits and pieces. And, but because we weren't as busy, 
we dropped our menu 30%. We got rid of all the things that we weren't, we didn't need to focus on anymore. And we just focused on what was popular, but we wrote, a, we wrote, now wrote a frozen side to our menu. You can come in and get frozen croissants. You can get frozen scones where we would make our scones fresh every single day. Well, now we're building up scone production to freeze, to sell. And I was so interested in the sense that these customers were bringing in pictures of the croissants that they made at home. I was like, why are they, why do they look so good? So I started bringing croissants home and proofing them in my house and baking them just to test. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was, wow, here we are in a professional kitchen. We have a professional proofer where we're, um, we're pumping in heat and moisture, right? We're forcing a croissant to prove unnatural, to fire the yeast and the sugar and everything in there so we can bake, get it out of the shop and do it. And, they were, and they're still good. But what I realized was when you proof a dough in a natural state with the natural environment and you allow it to slowly proof, uh, you allow it to proof slowly over time, and in the kitchen, it's not efficient. You can't do that because it's it's too much time. Your end result is actually better. We're not forcing something. We're at home. They're naturally allowing that to happen. And so with that, it was like these are little things that you don't think about until something big happens, like the pandemic. And it just changed a lot of how we looked at things in our pastry shop. And I thought that that was you know. We would have never seen that if this never happened. And and it goes to like, I, I'll never get there. Well, and they still do it. There's a Mexican restaurant in Vancouver. Um, the pandemic happened and they changed to um, make your own nachos at home. And you could go and yes. get nachos, but then they were, you know, pre-packing all the ingredients and you could take everything home and you make your own nachos. I was like, no one did that before, but why? It was so simple. It was like, why didn't we think about that? But it was forced to do things that change your business and you evolve from it and you get better from it. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of places got hit, but a lot of places did really well. And especially bakeries and pastry shops and coffee shops did extremely well because it was an essential food service and you had to you had to move quickly. And how can I get product out um, that um, where, you know, customers could come in and leave right away. I'm Mary Memolini, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with the Food Network's co-host of the hit show, Project Bakeover. He's a renowned pastry chef, master chocolatier, and entrepreneur, Chef Steve Hodge. Congratulations on season two of your hit show, Project Bakeover. Yeah, it was, uh, season two was fantastic. Um, you know, season one was amazing. And then obviously, you know, you... You, you you get the hang of it. Tiff and I were more comfortable together. You know, Tiff and I hit it off right away and we became like brother and sister. And I got to know her family. She got to know my family, my daughter. I always say to Tiff, I was like, Tiff, you ruined my daughter. Now my daughter's all about rainbows and butterflies. <laughs> and she calls Tiff and Tiff, I want to redesign my room. I'm just like, oh, Tiff, you're not even here and you're costing me money. <laughs> but um, no, we hit it off right away. And then obviously season two, even better. And then we, you know, you, 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 you figure out the kinks and how you can make it better. And, you know, you bring in new team members and it was just a team effort. And 
everything from different camera angles to, um, you know, the culinary producers, like new ideas. It just, everything flowed so well. And, and the personalities on the show, the bakeries that we were going into, they were amazing um, from all parts of Canada and all parts of, from the world. So it was great. What are some of the, um, or what can fans expect from season two in terms of some of the bakeries that you uh, went to go help? Well, I think, I think uh, season two, uh, a lot of emotions flying high, um, but good emotions. Um, you know, all the bakeries, even though they're in different provinces, they have a different look, they make different food. Um, they all had the same uh, similar, similarity when it came to what they were doing wrong. Um, but it was, um, these bakers were, I would say, were more homestyle bakers. And they jumped into it because, you know, someone down the road said, oh, you make a great cake, you should open a bakery. And, you know, they 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 opened the doors not thinking about all the other moving parts on running a business. And, you know, like, like everyone in, in all fields of business, you know, you hit a bump and you got to get over that bump. And these bakery owners um, were stopped. They didn't know how to get past it. And, and, you know, they, I don't think they'd ever dealt with failure before and it was bringing them down. And, you know, we came in there and we showed them, you know, how to get over that bump and, um, you know, how to run a business properly. And, you know, we, we set, we set the stage for them and then, Hopefully that they they carry they continue what we've taught them when we leave the bakery, but it's just it, uh, more emotions this season. I would say. What is your approach when you're tackling the menus of these places? So when we go in and we look at the menus, we obviously understand. Okay, well, what style of bake shop are they? Are they are they rustic? Are they high end? Do they just focus on bread? Do they focus on cakes? Do they do a little of everything? Chocolate, pastry, savory. One thing I try to push in bakeries through my experience of, with our bakery right now and where I've worked in the past, it pastry in bakeries are a small piece to the puzzle. There's only a certain group of people out there that eat that stuff, right? So how can you draw in everyone else? Well, if you look at restaurants, people go to restaurants, they have these extravagant dinners and then they never order dessert kind of thing. So it's telling you that people love, you know, in the it more love the savory side to pastry. So how can we draw them in to show them what you make and have them taste what you make to get them back? You know, that's why we always implement a savory aspect to it because you're missing out. It's a it's a prime it's a perfect scenario in a bake shop to run a breakfast item or to run a, a lunch item. Get those people that are commuting to work stop in a quick grab and go bite to eat and then they're in and if it's good they're going to come back but then they see everything else so what that triggers is that if they're going to a dinner party that night they don't venture off and visit bakeries or pastry shops they think oh my god i need to bring some desserts i don't i don't know where to get desserts but when you draw that person in on that savory item it's like oh my god i, I remember getting that little egg thing at the thing and they make desserts i'm going to go back and get some Right. It's it's little tricks like that to get customers through the door that a lot of these well, for the most part, the bakery owners don't know that. And that just comes and That's why I'm there, because that comes through experience. You know, I went through that in my business and we had to figure out 
uh, a lot of things. And even like, you know, we in our business, we learn every day, right? We're always, um, how can we, we're always thinking outside of the box. How can we make ourselves better, right? So, you know, we know what we make. We know what we're good at making. And in the beginning, when we first opened in a small community, a lot of customers like, oh, I think you should make this and this and this and this. And what you realize is like, what I realized in my head was, okay, no, these are, I'm sticking to my guns. This is what I'm making. But I also had to look at my demographics in the area. So where are my customers from? Um, Are they from Asia? Are they from Europe? Are they from the Middle East, right? So instead of creating dishes that were from those areas, I took my experience in my training through what we make and incorporated those flavors on certain things just to bring those customers in. That is brilliant because a lot of people, they're extremely talented, uber talented with their baking and their pastry making. But like you said, you can pigeonhole yourself. And it's true because when you think of pastry or or bakeries, the first thing that comes to mind is sweet. Yeah. And I love that you said about the savory. So what type of reactions do you get from the business owners? Well, so when when I go in, um, I... I made a decision that I'm not going to like read the notes and this and that, even Mm -hmm. though it kills everyone because they all (laughs) think I'm not organized, uh, which is true. Um, But I want to go in cold because I think that that makes the show real. Um, So I don't meet them beforehand. I don't look at the food that they make. You know, we have some notes of kind of what we're going to make, but sometimes that changes depending on what they do. Um, I know it frustrates people, but I think when you capture those real moments, it becomes real and the stress happens. And, you know, can you get them on board to trust you? And it's always that initial when you first meet them. Um, you know, the cameras are up. Uh, they're, the, the bakers are totally different. It's amazing to see how, um, personalities change when there's a camera on them. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, they, (laughs) they, yeah. And, and they don't initially, they don't, they don't know what's going to happen. So their guards up. And I, when I go in, my goal is I break the ice right away and I let them know, well, one, I want them to be comfortable, but I let them know, look. I'm not a TV host that has been hired to do this. Um, I'm a trained chef and I have a lot of experience and I know how hard the business is. And I know how small the community is worldwide in cooking. And because the failure rate is so high in bakeries, we all want everyone to succeed. And I know going in through the first few episodes in season one that um, I learned things as well. So because even though you can be a professional chef or a home baker, you have the business, you're in there, you're, it's repetition, you're doing things every day, you pick up on little tricks and ideas and we feed off of each other. So on camera and off camera, we talk food. And I think what they realize is we, we have one common similarity and that's we have passion for food. And that eases it for them because they know any time they ask me a question, I have the experience to back it up. And then they're kind of like, okay, now I'm going to listen to them. Yeah. 
and and it's like I mean everyone says that lives for food um, is that food unites us all. Oh, oh, absolutely! Like we were talking before we were on this podcast. Like my family, we get together for food. We are the best friends. As soon as that food's done, we're out the door and we're not talking until the next meal. <laughs> you know, and I think that um, you know, like we said, uh, whether you're in a bad mood or or whatever. Food brings joy. And, you know, when food brings joy, you're happy. And when you're happy, like, you, you, you live longer, I think. And that's what I love so much about this show is because you are bringing that joy back to their passion and what these business owners are doing and why they decided to do it. And I love the show because, it, you know, it's a feel-good show. You know, mm -hmm. you can go in there and you can rip them one and yell and this and that. And, and, and that happened in the kitchens when I grew up. But the reality is, is people don't want that. And, and people want to see people succeed. And this is what that show does. It is so real. Is there one transformation that stands out from the others? I would say my favorite transformation would have to be Tobamori episode, uh, Little Cove Bakery. Because for me, when I walk into a bakery and see a design, uh, it's about the atmosphere and the feel when you get in there. And what Tobamori did for me was brought back a feeling as a kid that when my parents and I and my sisters would go away for the summers to go camp or go to these little uh, cabin lodge style places, um, that's what Tobamori did. It was, it was everything. It was where it was the location. Um, it was the look of the design that uh, Tiff did, that kitschy design style. They had all the, like, the little antiques in there, the color, the food that we uh, put on the menu was food that I used to go to bakeries with my mom and eat, like butter tarts and cookies and stuff like that. And that one really struck something. And Tiff always says to me, she's like, oh, you always say every design's your favorite. And I was like, Tiff, this is hands down. This is the first design that you've done where it actually struck something with me, where when I walked in and saw it, I was it immediately brought me back to a kid. And I had to refocus so I could get back into the scene. But I was like, yeah, this is, wow. This, this reminds me of road trips with my parents in BC into the mountains. Okay. Before we go, rapid fire. Describe your cooking style in one word. Messy. What are the last three things you've had to eat? Protein shake, three eggs, and a grapefruit. What would your desert island meal be? Oh, stuffed peppers. Interesting. The Yugoslavian dish. I used to have it. My mom used to make it all the time. It's one of my favorites. Name or sing a song that always puts you in a good mood. St. Stephen with a rose in and out of the garden mm -hmm. he goes. Country garden <laughs> in the wind in the rain wherever he goes. You can't tell, but I am bopping over here. My head's moving. Grateful Dead. Awesome. If you could save one thing from your kitchen in a fire, what would it be? Oh, my blast freezer. Favorite ingredient to cook with? Butter. Curse words you use in the kitchen? Uh, Everyone pauses. <laughs> they're really not appropriate. Let's just say Gordon Ramsay says about 90% of them. <laughs> okay, all of which are bleeped. I ask every single guest to share a little kitchen confession with us. Do you have one that you could share? A kitchen confession. Confession. Um... Oh, uh, here's the, okay. I got a good one. Back in the day, in the restaurants, when I was working in all these places and high end places, 
and you would come in and spend a thousand dollars to eat in the restaurant and get like a 10, 15 course meal. Do I cook like that at home? Even though I know how to No. back in the day, I would come home and make craft dinner and chili can chili together and eat it. And to me, that was the greatest thing. Well, isn't there a saying the shoemaker always yeah. has is always shoeless yeah. or something? I don't, I don't do pastries at home. Like with my kids, maybe once in a while, we'll make cookies and stuff like that. But my wife cooks at home. I don't cook that. I want to say congratulations again on season two. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You are so much fun to talk to. If listeners want to reach out, watch the show, learn more about you, how can they find you? How can they find the show? Where do they go? Project Bakeover, uh, Thursday night at um, 9 p.m. Eastern Pacific on the Food Network. You can also stream it on Stack TV. Um, go online, foodnetwork.ca. You can check it out there. Uh, if you're in the U.S., you can watch it on Hulu. And uh, yeah. And can they find you online? They can find me online. You have any food questions, you can always email us at temper. If you're in Vancouver and you're looking for specialty ingredients, just come by the shop. We always have something to give you or share with you or teach you or just pop in and say hello. It's that time we've reached the end of another show. Did we get your stomach growling? Head over to kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. Plus, you can check out ami.ca forward slash kitchen confession for all the latest on the podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and review so we can keep bringing you more episodes you'll love. Our producer and editor is Matt Agnew, and I'm your host, Mary Mammolini. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.